If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Just a quick message before we get started today. Don't forget that this week we are celebrating the 100th episode of Philosophy for Our Times with Philosophy Fest. Send in your votes for your favourite episode of Philosophy for Our Times. You can tweet us at IAI underscore TV or email us on podcast at IAI.tv. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Philosophy for Our Times, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. That's the sound of a protest taking place outside Parliament in 2009. They were protesting the dismissal of psychiatrist and policy advisor David Nutt. You might remember how Nutt was fired from his government advisory post for suggesting that alcohol and tobacco were in many ways more harmful than LSD, cannabis and ecstasy. Since then, David has attended the IAI's How the Light Gets In Festival many times and has continued advocating for evidence-based drug policy. In today's episode, we give you his talk from this year's festival. It's called The Science of Psychedelics, and in it he not only explains the scientific theory behind tripping out, but explores how current drug policy is censoring research and potentially harming mental health patients. Psychedelics, they're they're an enduring feature of human existence. In fact, we're probably the only culture in the history of the world that's tried to eliminate them. And I'll explain why we've tried to do that uh, in a minute. Here's magic mushrooms. Here's ayahuasca being brewed up in a pot in the Amazon. Here's uh, Amanita muscaris, much loved of the uh, Northern Europeans and and early Christians. Here's morning glory. This is the most important image. This is an image from a Greek vase. It's 3,000 years old. It shows a Greek noble person partaking of this, which is ergot. Ergot is a fungus that grows on rye. And when the fungus grew, they used to have their holidays. So instead of going to Ibiza, they went to Elysia. And they, they took a combination of fungus and alcohol, which is an interesting combination, and um, a psychedelic and alcohol. Uh, and for a couple of weeks, they had mysteries, they had celebrations, they wiped their minds clean. And then afterwards, they went back to their city-states and did the things the Greeks were good at, which is uh, inventing democracy and writing poems we still cite today. You know, that's so first proof that psychedelics don't eliminate your brain. They actually uh, they may give you insights into humanity. But there's another interesting take on, on psychedelics, which is the possibility that actually Amanita was a major factor in the development of Christian beliefs. Now, these are some very interesting images from Christian uh, sites. This is Canterbury Cathedral. 
This, this Canterbury Psalter shows Jesus partaking of mushrooms, mostly Amanita here. And here you see, actually, the, it wasn't an apple tree in Eden at all. It was actually an Amanita tree. Uh, <laughs> they've obviously gone extinct, but um, it's an interesting possibility. And this is a very, very powerful book by um, John Allegro about how <coughs> mystical experiences in Christianity may well have developed from the use of Amanita. Let's get to the modern day. And I want to start with this man, because this is the man who really changed uh, the Western world's knowledge of psychedelics, Aldous Huxley. He took mescaline and wrote about the experience in uh, his book, The Doors of Perception. It was interesting, he decided not to use a quote of his own, but he went back to this quote by William Blake. William Blake, you know, the man that wrote Jerusalem, the, the great, the new anthem of, of England. And Blake was a visionary poet, a mystic, great painter. And like many brilliant artists, he could see things that people like me, scientists, couldn't see. And Blake said this, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is infinite. For man has closed himself up till he sees all things through narrow chinks of his cavern. And what Huxley realized was that mescaline broke down the closure. And in fact, mescaline opened the mind and opened the doors of perception, hence the title of the book, and hence, of course, the title of the rock band. And Huxley then went further and said, this tells us, and maybe you don't know, his brother won the Nobel Prize in medicine a few years after this, Andrew Huxley. He was a scientist as well as a, a literary person. Aldous Huxley said, the brain is an instrument for focusing the mind. And that revelation came from mescaline, and it now turns out he's right. Modern neuroscience has proved him right, and that's why Working in this field is so in appealing to me as a neuroscientist because it shows you can have, make inferences about how the brain works from insights, you get experiential insights, and now then science eventually, 50 years on, has caught up. So this is how the brain works. When you're looking at something, your brain is not a camera. When you're seeing an image, me, this, what happens is that the light, the photons from here, go into your retina. Your retina is a very complicated computer, a whole series of different electrical impulses that go for different nerves, and they go into your brain. And they go into different parts of your brain. Some parts, the color goes to one part, the movement goes to another part, the structure goes to another part, etc., etc. And you're using about a third of your brain at present to work out what you're seeing. And gradually, your brain reconstructs uh, an image of what you think you're seeing. And because it's hard work doing this, your brain doesn't actually recreate a perfect image of everything you see all the time. That would just use so much computing power, it would just be completely wasteful. So your brain essentially constructs pretty good approximations of what's there, using much less of the information. And so this is what, actually, the brain does what Blake said it does. It sees the world through chinks of its cavern. It just sees the things that it wants to see, the things that are most important. Now, for most of us, all of you, those of you who are out there, you're all positive and happy, the world you see for your cavern is usually pretty pleasant. You know, it's blue skies and, you know, fish swimming and things, etc. <laughs> But if you're depressed, when you, the depressed people, when they look through the chinks of their cavern, they don't see blue skies, they just see grey clouds, and they see misery. And of course, people with addictions, when they look out to the world, all they see is their love object, the bottle or the syringe. And our brain, therefore, constrains so much what we actually see. We don't see what's there, we see what our brain tells us to see. And psychedelics break that down. And this is, the, this is I'm going to show you how they do that in a minute. Because the mescaline was an interesting drug used you know, for millennia by Native Americans. But the big breakthrough came with LSD, 
This is a synthetic derivative of ergot, the fungus, and uh, this is the man that discovered it. He's 100 in this. He took LSD regularly for 50 years. His brain was not fried. In fact, the, the first British person to take LSD was Joel Elkies in 1953. He lived to 103. He lived to 102. I'm not sure if there's an association between psychedelic <laughs> use and age, but at least in some cases, it doesn't seem to impair longevity. And it was a really seen to be an, an enormously... It was a revolution. When LSD was discovered, it was a revolution. And here are two uh, revolutionary scientists who used it before it was made illegal. This man here, Kerry Mullis, uh, American. This man here, Francis Crick. Francis Crick, as you probably know, with Watson, discovered the structure of DNA. Having done that, he then helped Sanger discover how we code for DNA through RNA and how proteins are made. So he was instrumental in three Nobel Prizes in Cambridge. And then he thought, well, what's there to do now? I've sorted out life. <laughs> and then he took LSD. And he realized, actually, that was sorting out life is easy. Sorting out your mind, much more difficult. And he spent the rest of his life working on, on consciousness. But he didn't do it in Britain. He did it in America. Because in 1968, LSD was made illegal. And the police in Cambridge came to his house, which was actually quite easy to find, because he stuck a great golden helix outside to tell, pe <laughs> tell people he'd discovered this. And they said, yeah, Professor Crick, if you carry on having these parties, we're going to have to arrest you. And he said, well, stuff that. And he went to America, you know, where if you've got a Nobel Prize, you can get a job anywhere. And he spent the rest of his life, he never came back, because he thought it was outrageous that his, he should be constrained in what he did uh, in terms of thinking about his brain by a law that was going to be imposed upon him. So we lost our greatest scientist since Newton because we didn't like the fact he was exploring his mind with psychedelics. This guy, Kerry Mullis, lived, was in California at the time, and he was trying to work out how you could measure this. And he was really struggling, because this is a very, very complicated molecule. It took Crick and Watson and the rest of the team sort of four years to get enough DNA to measure. So Kerry Mullis trying to work out how we can measure DNA. And then one day, he said, during an LSD trip, he saw the molecule, the helical molecule, unraveling in front of him, and he realized that's what he had to do. He had to make replicas of this. Uh, he had to find something to uh, copy and copy and copy until he had enough to measure. And he went away, he found an enzyme in a bacterium called the polymerase enzyme, which made replicas, just like the serpents were unraveling in his mind. And he said he would never have gotten the Nobel Prize if he hadn't taken LSD, because that gave him the insight into change uh, how he did his science. And I think both of them would agree with this quote from Einstein. No problem can be solved from the same level of consciousness that created it. Einstein said that uh, over 100 years ago when he developed the concept of relativity. We still don't understand relativity now, but one thing's for sure, we're not going to understand it in terms of conventional physics. When LSD was discovered by Hoffman, he said to his Sando, the drug company, this is the revolution. Sando said, that's interesting, let's give it to some scientists. In the end, it was given out uh, as this medicine here. And uh, it was used in a whole series of different research endeavors, uh, including self-experimentation to help psychiatrists understand what it was like to have altered states of consciousness and, and as various forms of therapy. And this is a quote from the man who's probably done the most uh, psychedelic therapy in the world, Stanley Groff, a man who carried on doing it underground in Slovenia and other places in the world when it was made illegal. 
He said psychedelics used responsibly and with proper caution would be for psychiatry what the microscope is for biology and medicine and the telescope for astronomy. And I think there is no doubt about that. But of course it's been banned. It was banned in 1967. And it's interesting to know why it was banned. And it was banned because of war. It was banned because of the Vietnam War. And young Americans were discovering that they were being sent to Vietnam to fight in a war which they didn't understand. And uh, they didn't want to fight in it. We were getting reports like these from the combatants in Vietnam. Ron Kovic, the film born on the 4th of July. All I could feel was the worthlessness of right here in this place and in this moment, all for nothing. And O'Brien, I didn't want to die, not ever, but certainly not then, not there, not in the wrong war. The war provoked the anti-war movement. Instead of going to fight in Vietnam, people went to San Francisco, Haight-Ashbury. They took LSD, they put flowers in their hair, they read the works of Leary and Co. But most of all, they started protesting the war. LSD was banned because it changed the way people thought about the war. It changed the way people voted. But to get a drug banned in those days, you had to have evidence of harm. So there wasn't any, so they had to create some. Two years ago in Britain, the Psychoactive Substances Act was brought in, banning everything except alcohol as a drug that affects your brain, based on similar kind of lies. You know, they, the sun reinvented nitrous oxide as hippie crack to get it banned. These guys just made lies up about LSD. But it's not just lies, it's lies and sex together, and that's something that really upsets elderly voters. <laughs> <laughs> and when LSD was banned, all the other psychedelics were banned, just, you know, because they could be. It's banned in the face of opposition from the most powerful man in the world. Secretary of State Bobby Kennedy would have been president if he hadn't been assassinated, and he's saying to his own bureaucrats, hang on, Six months ago, you were telling me that LSD was a, a revolution. We had funded, NIH had funded, 140 separate studies on LSD. 1,000 papers have been published, 40,000 patients have been studied. And he's saying, now you're telling me it's not worthwhile, you're going to ban it? I don't get this. We keep going around and around. He knew he was being lied to. They were saying this drug was no use medically. It was actually dangerous, and he's saying that's rubbish. I think perhaps we've lost sight of the fact that LSD can be very, very helpful in our society if used properly. But even he could not stop the bureaucratic process. And it is very interesting that you've probably heard about these young kids now who've got epilepsy and they, they desperately, the only thing that treats them is cannabis, yes? You've heard about them, yeah? We believe, I don't know if it's true, but we believe even Theresa May wants them to have the medicine. But she can't make them have it because the law doesn't allow it. The bureaucratic process, once you get things made illegal, so difficult to overturn that we should be very careful about ever making things illegal. Anyway, we didn't win. LSD was made illegal and all the other drugs were made illegal. I would argue that it's the worst censorship of research in the history of the world because 197 countries signed up to this ban. No country in the world allows psychedelics for therapy. The only possible comparably damaging censorship of science was a very long time ago. It was actually in 1616 when the Catholic Church banned the telescope. Now, that lasted 150 years. There weren't that many astronomers. There were a hell of a lot of neuroscientists who've been stopped researching psychedelics in the last 50 years. And of course, the Northern Europeans could carry on using the telescope if they wanted, but no one researches psychedelics. The bureaucrats say, well, we haven't banned research. We haven't actually banned treatment. But in practice, of course, they have. And this proves it. So what you see here are the number of publications on LSD and magic mushrooms. Uh, reaching a peak when it was banned, and since then they've been enormously, you know, there's been a cataclysmic fall 
in terms of publication, because you can't get the drug. So up to this point, 140 grants in America to study LSD. Since then, none. And zero in Britain either. And since then, one in Britain, which is our psilocybin. So this may not be a legal censorship, but de facto, it's absurd censorship. But I want to tell you about how we've been fighting back. And we started off fighting back with magic mushrooms. You come back in a few months, you'll be able to pick lots of them outside here. <laughs> psilocybin is a relatively potent uh, 5-HT2A serotonin receptor agonist. This is LSD, the most potent. This is mescaline, relatively weak. So all the drugs, all the hallucinogens, work on the serotonin 2A receptor, which is one of 15 different serotonin receptors. Why do we use psilocybin? Well, it's, it's a gentle trip. Uh, effects, if you take it intravenously, last 30, 40 minutes orally, two to three hours, unlike LSD, which goes on for eight hours or more. The other reason we used it is it's very safe. We know a million people a year in Britain use it, and no one's ever died. And actually, even the regulators in Britain accepted that as evidence of safety. And of course, it's very hard to spell, so journalists and politicians <laughs> are very twitched about getting onto you. Why am I interested in this? Well, I've been interested in this because these receptors that psilocybin works on are massively expressed in the human brain. This is the cortex. This is where you are doing your thinking and feeling and planning now. This is where your sense of where you are and what you're doing is. These regions of the brain, the most highly evolved parts of the human brain, have got the highest density of these receptors of any animal ever. So your brain has evolved to have lots of these receptors. And uh, we don't know why. Some people believe they actually have driven the evolution of the human brain. Uh, I'm not sure if that's true, but it's possible. But certainly that they're in the parts of the brain which does a very important human-type things. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface-level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. So we did the first ever imaging study with magic mushrooms, put people in a scanner, gave the drug intravenously. It was too expensive to buy it and give it orally. If you give it intravenously, that reduces the cost tenfold. We gave it, people had all sorts of interesting hallucinations and sense of disorganisation. A couple floated out of the scanner, one went and bowed at the foot of God. He came back, thankfully, so we could, we could debrief him afterwards. And, um, and we looked at the brain image. Now, we thought, if you're seeing lots of interesting images and reading God, there might be some activity turning on in the brain. Psilocybin turned off parts of the brain. It didn't turn on any part of the brain. We thought this was so absurd, we actually did another study, and we found the same thing. We found that the, the greater the turning off of those regions in the brain, the greater the experience. So we were absolutely certain that what these drugs do is switch off key parts of the brain. And what are these key parts of the brain? Well, they're these two parts of the brain, what we call the connector hubs. This frontal part of the brain here is where you integrate all your thinking and your feeling with your memories. And this posterior part of the brain is where you integrate all your senses. And these two work together so that your senses and your memories and your feelings work in harmony. These are the core parts of the brain which make you what you are. And these are switched off by psilocybin. And that then allows the rest of the brain to do what it wants to do. Because these are the parts of the brain which completely control brain function. 
The reason you're here now is because this part of the brain said, get up at seven. Well, the reason I'm here now is said, get up at seven and drive all the way to hay to make damn sure I don't let you down. And this part of the brain helped me find it. Another, way, another analogy is, these are like the, the, this is like the conductor of an orchestra. When these parts of the brain are active, your brain is doing exactly what it's told to do, what it's always done. You know, you speak the same language and you have the same thoughts and processes as you've been trained to have over the last 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. When you switch those off, it's like getting rid of the conductor of an orchestra. So the orchestra then, can, instead of playing Mozart, it can say, I'll oh, sod this, well, let's play jazz. And a new whole form of music develops. Of course, jazz developed from the use of cannabis, which also switches off this part of the brain. And in fact, what was so pleasing about our research was it actually proved Huxley right. Huxley said there was a reducing, the brain controlled the mind, and mescaline lowers the efficiency of the brain as an instrument of focusing the mind. So it's kind of, it's rather wonderful that neuroscience has actually caught up with literature. In the normal situation, your brain reconstructs those light and sensations that come into your retina, and it reconstructs into images, but under under psychedelics, it can't. It can't organize them in the way it's always organized them. And that's why you see things differently. And, and what's actually interesting, and this is what is remarkable, the only time you can actually see how your brain, the brain visual system works, is under psychedelics. Because the build-up to make the full image is broken down, so you actually see the early processing, which is, again, a very interesting concept in neuroscience. But the other thing that happens, if you take away the control centers, the brain can connect in ways it's not allowed to. The process, as you probably know, those of you who've got kids are really engaged in this hard. You've got to make kids do the same thing all the time, otherwise they end up being very difficult. You know, glass has to mean the same thing every time. They ha you have to always learn, you know, systematically to be part of the human community. Everything's got to be organized. And that means that the brain becomes very good and very efficient at doing simple things repeatedly. And when we image the brain in a normal state, we see that most of the activity of the brain is round the edge. Bits of the brain involved in hearing talk to hearing, and bits of the brain involved in seeing talk to seeing, but there's not a lot of cross-connectivity. This is called the small world version of the brain. We've, education is about parcellating. It's about putting into the periphery of the brain the processes which make it easy for you to live your lives. But under psychedelics, this small world version of the brain breaks down and there's much more connectivity. Normally, very localized, very constrained, very traditional, under psychedelics, connections can be made which are never allowed in your brain, except since, since you've been one or two years old, you've been denied those access. And this break, the breaking down of connections gives people insights which they've never had before. And that's one of the reasons these drugs are powerful, not just in terms of changing people's political mindsets, but also dealing with disorders where you might have excessive rigidity of thinking, like depression or OCD. Just a few words about LSD. Here's Hoffman. Here's the molecule he invented. Uh, LSD is a truly a remarkable molecule because it's gone just from being a, a diethylamide of lysergic acid to being an art form, uh, you know, tattoos, shirts, jewellery. Apart from the cannabis leaf, there's no other drug which has had such a huge influence in terms of art. So we did the first ever imaging study of LSD ever in the world. And we found the same thing. LSD switches off the parts of the brain which control brain function in the same way as psilocybin. And the more you switch off the connectivity between this part of the brain, which I don't want to go into, and, and your memory, the more, the more you feel you're not part of yourself, the more you feel you're part of the universe. And also, we show for the first time why people have such interesting visual hallucinations with their eyes closed under LSD. It's because normally, as I explained, the small world brain your visual, visual cortex just talks to itself. Under LSD, the visual system can connect to anywhere. 
And that's why people have seen such interesting things under LSD, because they're, for the first time, as I say, since they were babies, the brain has been liberated. So that actually you can make connections uh, again. Just very briefly, I want to just show you that, that psychedelics are very different from any other drugs. Psychedelics over here, which switch off the brain, and drugs over here like anesthetics, which lock the brain into a state of complete synchronicity, which is very unhelpful in terms of thinking. Under these drugs, you can't think at all. You can't even move because you're anesthetized. Under these drugs, you can think very, very differently. And alcohol, by the way, what the one drug you're allowed to use legally in this country kind of makes you, th it gives you rigidity rather than flexibility of thinking. And based on all this, I've come up with a new theory of consciousness, which says basically there are two forms of consciousness. There's the consciousness of whether you're awake or asleep and whether you're remembering or forgetting, which is driven by these two transmitters. And there's a, there's a, a consciousness of what you're, the content and the nature of your thinking, which is a serotonergic process rather than a glutamate GABA process. But that's another talk. We've also done a DMT, ayahuasca study of the first ever proper measure of uh, DMT effects in the brain, and we found, again, very powerful disorganization of the brain. It, it completely disrupts brain functioning, exactly as we predicted from the psilocybin and the LSD studies. And what's interesting is we've asked people to come, when they've come out of this short trip, to draw what they saw. Because a lot of people enter DMT, so they say entities, they go and they, they wander off into space and meet usually nice people, nice things, that talk to them and uh, uh, help them. As we push up the dose of DMT, the hallucinations go from being simple hallucinations to more complex hallucinations, and then, then they start seeing things. They start seeing strange things like people, which they would call entities. Where they come from is a really interesting question. And we're doing the brain imaging now in this state to find out where they do come from. Uh, I suspect they're in here, but if they're out there, it's going to be a revolution in science. <laughs> so this is also fascinating. A number of our subjects who are colorblind so they could see things better after LSD. And people say, that's impossible. Color blindness is a retinal problem. Well, it isn't. This is a, a painting, a very famous painting by Monet. Very beautiful painting. Here's one of our subjects. All my life, I suffered from protonopia, a painting which had previously I'd seen as a dull mass of brown and blue. All the colors I'd previously unable to see were there on the screen when I took magic mushrooms. I was so overwhelmed, I couldn't speak for half an hour. So with this guy who couldn't understand this picture, seeing it under magic mushrooms could see the beauty of it. And actually, if you're interested in the science, I think it's because the brain stops many people, or some people, from seeing colours appropriately, which is why they're not artists. And then finally, just to finish, we, people often say they feel better after taking psychedelics. There's a formal study of normal people in John Hopkins 10 years ago, which showed long-lasting improvements in well-being. Some of our subjects came out of the scanner, and they said they felt better for a week or two. And that's, you know, even in a scanner, you know, from, it's an unusual place to take psychedelics. I wouldn't recommend it. And based on that, we actually got the only grant that's ever been given in this country to study psychedelics and mood. Ended up costing £1,500 a dose. And I said to the home office, this is crazy. I can prescribe heroin as a doctor, but you give, I have to have a special police check and a special safe to store my psilocybin. And they say, well, yeah, but we don't want you going off and selling it. <laughs> £1,500 a dose, not even in Kensington, where I live, am I going to get that? <laughs> it's just absurd, but that's how the law screws over research. And the, the effects were profound, a single dose of psilocybin. One, patient, one of our patients had nine previous antidepressants and hadn't responded. And some of them went into complete recovery just days after the trip. And some of them stayed well for months. So it's the most profound impact of a drug on resistant depression there's ever been. Now, of course, these people are writing to me saying, my depression's come back, can I have it again? And I say, it's illegal. No, we can't do anything about it, sorry. You know. 
We've now got whole hundreds of people wanting treatment who can't have it because the drug's still illegal. And it changes attitude. Before treatment, we ask people, or depressed people, about their attitude to life, and it turns out depressed people have what's called pessimism bias. They see the world as a hostile, nasty, threatening place. Of course, they're right, it is, but that doesn't help them. Most of us see that we have what's called an optimism bias. We, we actually think it's going to be dry when we get outside. <laughs> but after treatment, this pessimism bias disappears. And here's, here's an example of one patient saying, my outlook has changed significantly. I'm more aware now it's pointless to get wrapped up in endless negativity. I feel as if I've seen a more clearer picture. A lot of our patients said it was like a reboot. They were broken free from the, the incessant negative thinking of depression, and they could see the world afresh. And uh, I'm going to just remind you of this great philosopher and playwright, Bernard Shaw, who said, those who cannot change their minds cannot change anything. And I just hope that you and the rest of the world can have your minds changed by the research we've done showing that psychedelics, they do open up the mind and they do have therapeutic potential. And keeping them illegal is actually just doing harm to society. Thank you. listening to Smells Like LSD from N3RGUL. Thanks also for music from Chad Crouch earlier in the episode. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, which was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. Let us know what you thought by tweeting at IAI underscore TV with the hashtag philosophy for our times. Plus, don't forget to keep an eye on your favourite podcast app for more bonus Philosophy Fest content coming later this week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>